country of Indonesia. Do they like me in Indonesia? 100% confident Indonesia will prevail. Welcome to Talking Indonesia. I'm Jackie Baker at Murdoch University. Traditional Islamic institutions and organizations have long been lauded as moderate, a character scholars credit to traditional Islam's syncretic embrace of local cultural beliefs and customs. It's this moderate character of Indonesian Islam that has enabled Indonesia, the world's largest Muslim country, to become a flourishing democracy, unlike other Muslim-majority countries in the Gulf states or the Middle East. But the face of Islam in Indonesia is changing, and traditional Islam is being contested by rising conservatism, ushering in a set of theological, cultural and social changes that some scholars have called the Arabization of Indonesian Islam. Conservative Islamic social movements, movements that are not new and have long held a foothold in Indonesia, have in fact surged in the liberal and open political environment of Indonesia's democracy. Salafism is one of those movements, a puritanical school of Islamic thought connected Saudi Arabia. Who are the Salafi and why are they so attractive to young Indonesians? How have they proliferated and what do they want politically and economically? How is Salafism changing the face of Islam in Indonesia and potentially being changed in turn? To discuss these questions, I'm here with political anthropologist Chris Chaplin from the Religion and Global Society Research Unit at the London School of Economics and Political Science. Welcome, Chris. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So, Chris, can you tell us what is Salafism and what's the background of this religious community in Indonesia? Uh, so when we talk about Salafism, uh, we're talking, we have to really boil down to what kind of Salafi is in the term, because the as a, as, a, as a reference, Salafi refers to as-Salaf, or those generations of Muslims that preceded us. For that reason, it holds a certain kind of prestige within kind of Islamic circles, regardless if they are a part of what we refer to as the Salafi movement today, or kind of Muslims in general. So it's got a more holistic kind of element to it. But what I refer to as Salafi in Indonesia the moment really kind of boils down to a movement that's trying to emulate the first three generations of Muslims. Um, and they do this through a rigorous study of Hadith, the Quran and the Sunnah in order to emulate in a very literal element the ways that the kind of sayings of the Prophet. Now, they arrived in Indonesia um, in about the 1980s, mainly through individuals that had went had studied in Saudi Arabia, where the movement really originated, especially in the University of Medina um, during the 60s and 70s, under one of the scholars there called Alabani, who was an expert in hadith. Now, through studying the hadith and the method that Alabani did, this movement started to grow in a global dynamic. So it entered Indonesia in the 1980s, and you saw this growing movement, especially in university campuses amongst individuals that had studied in Saudi Arabia and tried to emulate the ideas. Now, since the 1980s, it has actually it's grown. Now, in Indonesian public or political folklore, the most notorious Salafi-influenced group, perhaps, is Laskar Jihad. However, behind Laskar Jihad and behind those groups has been a far more grassroots incremental growth in religious schools, in religious businesses, 
you know, online campus university activities, social media, and so forth. That's a that's part of this Salafi movement that, that we see across Indonesia. Now, it's difficult to quantify exactly how large they are. They're across most of the country, but because it's a very decentralized movement, there is no one hierarchical aspect or point to this movement. They, they are everywhere at the same time as working in very informal ways amongst each other. Can I just clarify, is Salafism the same as Wahhabism? And is it the only conservative movement to have taken root in Indonesia in the 1980s from the Middle East or Saudi Arabia? So there are differences between Salafism and Wahhabism. Uh, in fact, one of the big labels of accusations targeted towards Salafis are the fact that they're Wahhabi, mainly because you do have similar links to Saudi Arabia. Uh, moreover, there are certain similarities between the two when we think of co- social conservative religious values. For example, the use of niqabs for women um, and strict aspects on gender segregation. However, there are differences between the two. Wahhabism, for example, adheres to the uh, Hanbali school of jurisprudence, as well as within Saudi Arabia itself being far more hierarchical in the way that it's structured amongst ulama. Now, for Salafis, they don't adhere necessarily to any one singular school of jurisprudence and are far more egalitarian. A common observation, as we observed in the introduction to this piece, is that conservative Islam has really flourished in the post-1998 era. And much of the argument of that has been because conservative Islam has been able to operate in a much less repressive political and media environment. But in your book, you note that this is only really part of the picture because, you know, you observe that Indonesian Muslims are making very active choices towards this more conservative, more socially conservative Islam, including Salafism, over other forms and ways of expression, right? So I guess in the marketplace of ideas, you know, Indonesian Muslims are are making specific choices. And what do you think is really driving this? Like, what is it about the last, you know, 24 odd years of Reformasi that has seen this Salafi community surge? Sure. So there's a certain kind of number of dynamics that we see going on, I suppose. Like on the more structural plane, what you've seen in the last 24 years is the emergence of a very complex but very lively and sometimes volatile public sphere within Indonesia. And especially when we're talking about Islamic ideas, you've seen the emergence of charismatic preachers, new TV um, programs, hearing to piety. You've also seen politicians themselves start to try and court the quote-unquote Muslim vote by passing certain morality laws, bylaws, and so forth. So you have all of this going on in the background in Indonesia, which is part of the democratic reformation opening that we've seen. Now, if you add to that the global politics of what's going on, I mean, Indonesia isn't alone in the fact that we've seen a resurgence of religious revivalism uh, since the 1970s. And really, part of this has been the transformation and the ideas transcending from one area of the world to the other and this greater collectivity and opportunity to share both through travel but also through technology and communication. But beyond those as well, you can really drill down into the personal, the very local kind of narratives that go on. And I think this is where the story of Salafism really comes into its own in Indonesia, in the fact that beyond these politics and these drives for potentially for individuals to adhere to the Muslim vote or something like that, you see very local dynamics of what's going on. So for example, amongst Salafis themselves, you see preachers being able to very adeptly tune and fine tune their their lecture material to a specific 
specific audience, be it their gender, their educational background, their, so, their social grouping, their ethnicity, or so forth. Um, and with that as well, creating this more lifestyle choice of community as well. So individuals aren't necessarily just being dictated to. It's egalitarian. You learn together. You you have opportunities to expand beyond that. If you're looking for advice on economics, education, starting a family, or so forth. So it's this big lifestyle choice that's going on, and this collectivity of being with a family as well. And this is what Salafism has essentially thrived within the last several decades. And part of its success is the fact that it does not have one center or one hierarchy. So because of this, you have very local branches of Salafism starting up, and it gives a lot of emphasis on individuals themselves to start their own industries, to attach themselves to schools, to kind of follow their own individual, but also local and collective desires when it comes to religious learning. And this is where Salafism has been able to answer those calls and that anxiety that might be coming about because of democratic opening. Is that in contrast to other more moderate Islamic institutions on offer? It's perhaps less not in contrast, but in competition too. And you do you do see an ability of Salafis to be able to tap into um, younger generations in a way that larger or established organisations may struggle to do so. Now, I'm saying that with the caveat that Natural Ulama Muhammadiyah are still much larger than Salafism ever was. They do have the resources to reach out to individuals through their vast networks of schools, universities, and so forth. But for a lot of individuals in the Salafi community, it's not a zero-sum game of joining one group or another to begin with initially. And this is where Salafism and this egalitarian and flexibility really comes into its own. Whereas Natural Ulama is quite hierarchical, quite traditional, Salafism is in itself or in the individuals on the ground are able to respond to an instant or an event or someone's anxiety about a certain aspect very quickly. Um, it's for them to interpret what's going on and what to adhere to religious principles when they're doing so. And that ability, that dynamism is something that is to their advantage compared to larger organizations, which almost like giant ships just take a long time to turn around when it comes to these issues. You're showing us a picture of a series of small-scale grassroots networks. And I wanted to ask, how do you do the kind of research you do with these sorts of decentralised networks? How did you start to do this kind of research with the Salafi community? Well, engaging with the Salafi community was quite a slow, incremental process, really. When kind of researching communities that are just generally by their nature quite closed, I suppose this is part and parcel of doing that ethnographic research, ensuring that it's being done kind of ethically and responsibly. So in that sense, my engagement with Salafis increased slowly over time and increased within a certain milieu within Jogjakarta, which perhaps had more affinity with myself because they were in universities. I was in a university and we had that, that base level of commonality to make initial inquiries. Now, slowly over the course of the ethnography, that in itself increases. You start to join individuals in their religious learning, in their activism on a daily basis. And as that happens, you, you somewhat build that trust. Um, so it was a very essentially kind of slow process to begin with. But it did open my eyes in, in the way that the network itself is mapped out across the city. So you started to notice that just 
very different spaces. These were, for example, Salafi villages down in the south, uh, school networks crisscrossing from the east to the west of the city, uh, university lectures, mosques and mushula across different campuses, um, and the foundations behind them as well, and the individuals that were organizing these aspects. And what you noticed in this network that, yes, there was competition, but there was also collaboration. So on the collaborative front, what you saw was individual preachers would work on multiple different fronts. There would be a school teacher in the day at a distinguished Salafi Pasantren. In the afternoon, they'd go lecture in a university. And then in the evening, they'd run one of their businesses or an online consultation forum. And they'd work with other preachers as they were doing this. Now, within that itself, there was a bit of competition on an interpretive level. When you're trying to answer daily routines and anxieties of students, for example, there aren't necessarily always one answer. And there was disagreement within the movement. For example, a common question that usually came up was whether one could study at a university if you received your scholarship from a foundation run by a cigarette company, which is quite common in Indonesia. Um, And the answer is essentially no. But there are caveats to that. But you should study until you can find some more funding or so forth. And it's within these debates that you saw the competition of people trying to not necessarily push individuals away, uh, but at the same time trying to adhere to their religious principles. And different preachers would approach it in different ways. Some were far more direct. Some some were a bit more sensitive to what was going on. And it's in those dynamics that you saw the kind of intra-Salafi dynamism within their kind of conversations. Now, on a different level as well, they, they did compete with other Islamic groups and cooperate with other Islamic groups, I should say, as well, on university campuses. They would share spaces, mosque lecture theatres, for example, with other groups. Um, and there was always a certain amount of subtle criticism of any group that was seen as overtly political or not adhering to Salafi tenants. But at the same time, this never developed into anything that you could call open conflict. Sounds amazing. I never thought about the city of Jogjers as having this alternative geography. Sounds to me like you were sort of zipping between different Salafi spaces across the city. Is that right? Um, and, the, and the space of Jogjakarta itself is also interesting in the sense that it does have this Islamic history being the, the founding city of Muhammadiyah. But you also have the because of its nature as, a, as the centre of Javanese culture, these almost contravening forces against Salafism, um, where Salafism is very puritanical, Jogja is steeped in history um, around the Kraton, around the, the Javanese-ness and the Javanese practices. So you did have this tension on the ground at certain moments between what was seen as Jogjakarta as this embodiment of culture and uh, and on the other side there's some student religious activism. You start your book with this really interesting anecdote which really draws on the tensions between the local Javanese Muslims and the Salafi community who in this anecdote are opening a new school. And in that anecdote one of the sarong wearing, songkok wearing gentlemen stands up speaking partly in Javanese, partly in Indonesian and seems to raise protests. The protests are interesting because the beef doesn't seem to be so much theological or religious, but the disinterest in the Salafi community in engaging with and cooperating through local cultural institutions like community policing or other kinds of local order-making services that exist within a neighbourhood. Why do Salafi reject these practices when there doesn't seem to be a religious basis for it? So that's an interesting question. That anecdote as well in itself 
really vividly drew out not just the religious but also the, the cultural dynamics of what was going on within that story local neighborhoods that complained that Salafis were not participating in Gotong Royong or traditional guarding of the villages didn't complain necessarily on religious grounds they complained on the fact that there was no respect for Japanese cultural norms um, and this in itself when you looked at the Salafi school essentially could stem from the fact that not many people within the hierarchy of that Salafi school were, were from Java or from the area and again this t- this goes back to the fact that there's a strong basis within the student community within the Salafi so you have that travel across different parts of Indonesia to study in Jogjikarta and then staying there as part of this movement and not necessarily adhering to those Javanese norms. But in itself, there is an interesting give and take that we've seen over the last, say, 15 years within the Salafi movement itself of how exactly to confront social norms within the community, political norms and behaviour, and how best to align yourself, especially when it comes to being seen as an existential threat to, say, religious traditions linked to Natatul Lama, or even to the state sometimes when we're thinking about the kind of more grandiose kind of terrorist threats or, or the idea of undermining the, the Indonesian nation. And in these aspects, you've seen Salafism constantly give and take. So for example, 15 years ago, perhaps Salafis would, would not participate in any activity that was deemed secondary to their existence. So, so they might register births, marriages, and so forth at the local office, but they wouldn't go necessarily further than that when it came to engaging with anything that was seen as a government institution. Now you fast forward a while and it comes to this pragmatic kind of idea of participating in elections by voting as a way of just ensuring that the best candidate could be out there. Now, again, as this progresses, you see Salafi starting to, um, including the school that's mentioned in this anecdote, um, engage with local government bodies in order to get accreditation, for example, to ensure that their students can graduate and go off to an Indonesian university, but also to ensure that they get funding that's needed, they can work with other schools, sign up to the same sports leagues, for example. And then even kind of then moving on to where you where you are, we're in a state now where Salafis have changed the way they've dressed, they now wear t-shirts, they've started their own industries, and even using Indonesian flags, for example, like on their clothing and within their schools, which is something that you didn't see 10 years ago. So you're seeing this give and take that's changing over time. And part of this is reactive to the resentment, the distrust that you've seen within these examples and the fact that Salafis are trying to show that they are actually part of the landscape of Indonesia and Indonesian Islam. But it's also a proactive reorientation of what Salafism means within Indonesia today. Is it a kind of standoff of community of some sort that wants to isolate itself or doesn't want to integrate itself into the wider Indonesian quote-unquote debate when it comes to Islamic mores and Islamic principles. I mean, I'm fascinated by these transformations because my familiarity with them is as a very secretive, isolated group of people. But actually you're suggesting there's been really radical transformations over the last 10 years. So they are, to an extent, still quite closed and secretive. It is their nature to try and create a perfect Islamic society closed off from what they see as un-Islamic innovations. But yes, and part of this is generational. The more generations coming through that have grown up in open environments in Indonesia and have access to greater kind of knowledge 
knowledge when it comes to different Islamic sources, different greater awareness of the politics of the country, greater awareness of what's going on in general. You have seen this proactive opening up. Not many Salafis want to isolate themselves and take themselves away from their families, the, those individuals that they're free Salafi life, perhaps. Many of them still want to be able to engage with their parents, with the community around them, and to give back. And part of this is through giving welfare, uh, educational programs, emergency relief if there's a natural disaster of some sort. But part of it is also being part of that debate of what's going on. We can see that in the fact that within Job Jakarta to this day, Salafis are quite active when it comes to organizing business consultation forums, trying to spur new technology when it comes to the use of Islam for educating children, but also just creating Islamic fairs as well and trying to promote themselves out there. We've seen over the last five years, particularly in the second term of Jokowi uh, and around the second election, that more conservative elements of Islam is being scapegoated, being pointed as the heart of the political problem. Jokowi very evidently frames extremist Islam, however he defines that, as his political enemy. You know, there's been all sorts of spin-off political projects around that, including the 2017 ban of Hizbul Tahrir, but also around the election, this moral panic that seemed to seize Indonesian institutions and organizations saying that extremist Islam had bedded down and was spreading through these institutions, whether that be media institutions or schools or universities. And this was felt very keenly by people. So the wider environment in which Salafis are operating has been, I imagine, deeply hostile has that been as well how Salafis have experienced this? And how have they seen this wider debate at the national level? Yeah, so Salafis try their best not to kind of partake in kind of national politics. But having said that, the wider effects have been felt within the community. You see that in the proactive efforts they have to emphasize their Indonesianness. They are Indonesian <laughs> by birth. I mean, but they seem to have to re-emphasize that. For example, one of the ways that you do that is that when you go into certain uh, university Salafi kind of forums, you see far more common use of the Indonesian national flag or the wearing of an Indonesian national flag or badge at an Islamic fair. So the, these small snippets of kind of symbolism are very much part of the, this evolving kind of political landscape and this division that we're seeing as well. This idea that if you're Salafi, you're somehow not Indonesian and the, the need to kind of prove that this is not the case amongst these groups. So you are seeing that. You are also seeing a divide on university campuses. We've seen that through certain regulations on the banning of specific religious clothing. And also more broadly, where Salafis sit within these university campuses themselves, which forums and which mosques are they allowed to use? Which departments seem to be even more Salafi in their characteristics, engineering perhaps, or medicine? So you are seeing this division being re-emphasized. Now, to an extent, it's always been there. It's just very much become part of this national idea of political polarization in Indonesia at the moment. And has that political conflict forced Salafis to take a position or change their position on, for instance, Panchasila, which Jokowi brandishes as, as his ideology that rivals that of conservative Islam? So when it comes to Panchasila, Salafis themselves have never necessarily been opposed to Panchasila as an ideology. However, they see Islam as the defining principle that unites them and unites the people. So it's not an it's an opposition that seems to be put forward within the political realm by Jokowi and the administration, but also look, when it looks to who's opposed to Panchasila looking at Hizb Tahrir, and there's more of explicitly Islamist groups. Now, Salafis are not part of that in themselves. So that political idea of choosing one over the other is not necessarily part of their daily discourse. 
more broadly speaking, do they have political ambitions or political aspirations? And do they have a, a viable, explicit political agenda that they're working to? Um, so this is a really interesting question. And it gets us to kind of delve deeper to exactly what we mean when we're talking about politics and Islam within Indonesia. So on the political framework, perhaps of elections, of taking power, state presidencies, reforming the constitution, for example, no. Salafis do not have a political agenda in that regards. They're not involved in the politicking for electoral gain, the materialistic dynamics around elections and patronage, albeit they do calculate who would be the beneficial candidate to let them continue to do what they are doing. But beyond that, the ideas of free space, they're not necessarily looking to the next 10 years of where Indonesia is going to sit in terms of politics and where Islam is going to be within that, that makeup and that constitution. However, we go to a deeper level of that social political transformation of society itself. You can see that there are political ramifications to Salafism, especially in the, the, the idea of reorientating your perception towards religious identity, towards the nation. The politics are effect that we see when it comes to Islamic solidarity, foregrounding Islamic codes within the public sphere. And on this level, you do see Salafis engaging on this deep aspect of political transformation within the public sphere. And that in itself, yes, as we've seen in the last several years, especially after conviction of Ahok and the rise of Muslim majoritarianism, does have a consequence when it comes to the broader dynamics of Indonesian politics. Um, but as a group in itself, Salafis, at least in Jogjakarta, do not have direct aspirations for politics. So just to clarify, my understanding is they don't get involved in the horse trading of everyday electoral politics, but they do seek wider Islamic transformation of Indonesian society. And that might mean that they would get on board with various legal or legislative changes to, you know, a polity or a region or what have you. Is, is that the distinction there? Um, yes and no. Again, because it's a very decentralised network, certain Salafi preachers will get on board with these local bylaws, for example, or anything that's pushing that Islamic kind of moralizing effect. On a similar dynamic, if we're talking about sectarianism, any efforts to curb, say, the activities of Shia communities or Ahmadiyya, for example, are something that Salafis themselves will support. But you'll generally rarely see Salafis be at the forefront of those movements or kind of push that as the main agenda. They'll work as part of coalitions, but they work much deeper plane in the sense that they want to sow the ideas of why certain transformations need to happen in the first place. Yeah. I mean, we've talked a lot about the political sphere, but I was really interested in your research and how much it talked about the Salafi movement as expressed through certain types of consumption, where our followers choose certain goods over others as a way of expressing their faith and reinforcing, I guess, the kinship of community. So we've talked a bit about sort of the political ideology of the Salafi community, but does the Salafi community have an economic model or an economic vision for transformation of Indonesia? Economics is somewhere that they've been incredibly active. But what you've seen in the last 10 to 15 odd years is the creation of Islamic cottage industries 
uh, but also communities in order to collectivize how best to create and facilitate Islamic businesses. Jogjakarta has been, uh, the, the community there has been one of the um, model ideas of this. For those familiar with Indonesia in religious literature, the magazine Pengusaha Muslim or Muslim Businessman um, is published by these organizations as a way of really kind of talking about the different dynamics of creating a Sharia oriented business model. And so what you see is not only creation of online market spaces, but also the kind of transition into looking at new technologies and their potential for Salafi growth. You see them kind of growing into certain kind of elements, including blockchain technology for really expanding out into that and taking hold of what the metaverse is and what that can be used when we're talking about Islamic learning and the economies behind that, connecting different parts of the Salafi community across Indonesia together. So they've been very at the forefront of that. We've seen that also with the creation of social media apps to learn about Islam, but also to connect to different preachers and different religious forums online. And the reason that they've been so dynamic when we think about their economic activism is twofold. Firstly, there's a disproportionate amount of individuals that have graduated from IT, medical, business, technology departments within the contemporary Salafi movement, or at least what we see in Jogjakarta. So by nature, when many graduate, they want to continue their trade and they find an adequate forum or space and a group of individuals willing to support that within the context of Sharia economics. So you see that coming forward. And the second dynamic is the fact that Salafism is decentralized. It's somewhat, I refer to the word rhizomatic, in the way that it acts, which means that individuals don't have to acquiesce to a higher central office in Jakarta before they expand and decide they want to create a new business of some sort. They are trying to adhere that individuals re-engage with their religion, come to terms with this and join the Salafi community. But they do so in ways that inherently kind of have this capitalist political logic behind it, including ideas of education, class, aspiration, and so forth. Which is why when you look at Salafi communities and universities um, and the way that they talk in this very intellectual manner, it does differ from the way that Salafis engage with, say, village communities, where they talk in very kind of simplistic terms. So they are taking on board these kind of logics of who are consumers, who are intellectuals, who are at the forefront of capital advancement and who needs more further development. And these dynamics assimilate into the way that they talk to individuals themselves. So you do see this confluence with capitalist kind of notions of identity and belonging in Indonesia, not only on the idea that they are using the financial models of capitalism, but also the underlying kind of logic that's there too. That's incredible. It sounds sounds like a very fertile area for research. That was Chris Chaplin. And if you want to read more about his work, his book Salafism in the State is available through NIAS Press. Talking Indonesia will return in a fortnight, but you can find the entire Talking Indonesia podcast archive at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, this has been Jackie Baker. Thanks and bye for now. Thank you.